Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you are watching on YouTube and you want to learn a little bit more about what we do here, head over to officehours.global. Our first hour, we answer your questions on all things digital media productions. And our second hour is typically when we want to spend a little bit more time on a subject. And today we'll be talking all things community engagement and public relations with veteran publicist Eric Alper. So go ahead and get your questions in early. And it's a great time to start the show. Let's dive into it, Bill. Absolutely. Liberty, our first show, our first question comes from John Snyder in Reno, Nevada. And John says, would you use the Mac PC or Raspberry Pi version of Playout B and why? Jonas? I would use whatever device is close to you like this. Really great Raspberry Pis that are really hard to get right now. Um, please do not pay scalper prices for Raspberry Pis. Get an old uh, like Intel knock or Link or whatever the Amazon uh, cheap Windows PC of the day is, get that instead instead of buying an expensive Raspberry Pi. But if you also have like an old Intel Mac lying around or an old PC on Raspberry Pi 4 lying around, use whatever you have lying around. And if you want to buy it, uh, make choices on what you can reuse also for other things. Mitchell? Uh, Raspberry Pi. I like the idea of building a bespoke um unit that just runs Playout B and has an LCD screen built onto the front of it. So it's a box that basically sits off to the side and you can uh, hit it and make it do things. And uh, the only problem right now is that, as uh, Jonas says, the Raspberry Pis are uh, at scalper price levels. So I'm going to wait them out. Next. Oh, Alex. I just had a question. Do we know what's causing the backup in the Raspberry Pis and when that backup might end. Jonas, is that something that you've with, been tracking that? Within this year, um, so the crazy thing is the, there's like huge process, like huge demand and the industrial side has been focused. And one of the things that the Raspberry Pi Foundation has done is for companies that committed on building their product on the Raspberry Pi platform, supported them with stock and not gave as much stock to the hobby market. There's still like hundreds of thousands of Raspberry Pis going over the counters, I think monthly. But it should get better this year as the processes uh, get updated. Got it. Next question. Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York is up next. Mac OS, uh, OS no longer supports keeping Dropbox or Google Drive folders on external drives. For someone with a 500 gigabyte internal drive and an 8 terabyte OWC Mercury external SSD, this is a drag. How do you move forward with this? Seth? Yeah, so this is an API level change in the latest builds of Mac OS. Now, specifically to Dropbox, it remains to be seen if they'll make the necessary updates to do it. The good news is for Google Drive, you actually can. Uh, the latest build of the Google Drive for desktop uh, application does let you do this. I tested it before the show on uh, Mac OS Ventura. So uh, install the latest client and in the preferences, look for the mirroring as opposed to the streaming setting on uh, Google Drive and uh, you'll be able to uh, get that functionality restored. Alex? So Seth, this isn't actually a, uh, it's not that Dropbox couldn't do it, it's just they won't. Is that, is that correct? It is, it is possible to do if, uh, if the uh, developers will make the required updates. Mitchell? I'd like to put a, a vote in for don't use the cloud uh, because drives are so cheap and plentiful. Um, I do a lot of work that has to be air-gapped 
and I'm, I'm much more comfortable having that external drive plugged directly into the uh, the computer. And when I'm done, I just pull it out and send it off to the client via FedEx. So until they hack FedEx, I'm okay. What's air-gapped? Air-gapped means no connection to the Internet. Copy that. Alex? Yeah, I, I don't use any of these. I haven't allowed Dropbox to sit on my computer for a long time because it would just suddenly eat up a bunch of my, my drive space. And I wasn't very, I didn't appreciate that. Um, and same with in Google Drive. I store things. I unfortunately have a lot of stuff on Dropbox that I, I have trouble getting all of it off because there's so much there. But um, but I I transfer things. I, I use Frame.io more now for to transfer to clients and to transfer to team members um, to move things back and forth. But I don't store things. I don't create that kind of passive storage anymore. And I haven't done that for probably a decade. So I, while it may be new if you're using it as passive storage, uh, for a lot of us, we kind of moved away from that because it wasn't as stable um, on many levels uh, to do that. Courtney? Yeah, I use Google Drive mainly for storing stuff that I need to transfer to other people because it's so hard to attach something to an email these days because of all the anti-viral stuff prevents any kind of attachments that could be programming. So I post it on Google Drive. It's easy to send a link to somebody. It maintains security, and uh, that's the only thing I really keep it for. And Keely? The big move that I made last year, and I don't ever want to look back, is to go to uh, networked attach, Network Attached Storage, NAS, and I'm using my Synology to store all of my big, massive field hockey matches, and I think it's just been divine. The challenge that I've had is that sharing the large size files has been very slow to other people, so I'll still occasionally put things on Google Drive in order to more easily share them as as we've seen in other comments, but a, a NAS is definitely the way to go, or a NAS, whichever way you say it. Yes, yes. Bill? Um, I remember well, I ran into some issues with Dropbox, so I decided to uninstall it, and I threw, I was throwing away files for an hour, and I still couldn't get it out of my system, and I eventually had to go online, and somebody had published an actual uninstaller. Apparently, it has pretty deep kind of fish hook-like hooks into your operating system or into your OS or something, uh, and without that official uninstaller, it was causing problems on boot and other things for a while. So just if you decide you're going to go in a different direction, and that's entirely up to you, make sure you do a very careful uninstall. Good call there. And pulling in a comment here from Jeffrey, he says, I have Google Drive on a networked machine. If I need to send and receive items, I just grab the network share. And we'll wrap with Jonas. Yeah, so one of the things is you probably use... Uh Google Drive in two ways, either to uh, publish files that other people need to download, or you use it to sync with your team to share footage. Um, if it's something that you publish that uh, you then need to download, you can still use something like Drive or upload it to Cloudflare or to or Frame.io. But if you want to share footage, you could also look into something like um, LucidLink, which then would allow you to actually stream the files, allows your person on the other end like, I still think it's one of the most magical things that we ever seen on office hours. The other pe person can even start uh, working with the files while they're still on your end. And it just works really great in that uh, way. So that's also one of the solutions I would look at if you have a need there to sync files with your team. Next question. 
Next one comes from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. Morning, guys. I'm inches away from purchasing a gimbal for my iPhone 13 Pro and looking at the DJI Osmo 6 or the Zhijun Smooth 5S. Are there any other ones I should be looking at? Also, which one would you guys settle on? Thanks. Bill? I don't have any experience with the Zhijun, but I've owned the DJI Osmo 5 for a long time. And I have to, I, I got to tell you, it's been a, a joy to have and work with. I don't work with it all the time, but whenever I'm shooting on my iPhone, I usually take it along with me. And boy, it does a ma magnificent job of smoothing out shots. In fact, if you were at the show on... Uh, uh, Friday, you saw a lot of the footage that we did from the tennis facilities that I think was on a little Osmo gimbal, and those shots looked fabulous. The combination of some uh, of a handheld uh, gimbal like that and an iPhone can produce some really spectacular results, better than I would have thought. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, the the um, the DJI is the best. <laughs> it's the best one for the price. I find their licensing to be really frustrating, you know, it, so I feel like there's room there just because they create so much frustration. You can't, you have to put their app in and log in just to turn the thing on, which makes me just crazy. Um, but I will say that the feature set is by far the deepest of the rest of them. After that, it, they're all kind of pretty similar. If all you need is some basic floating shots, you can save money by not getting the DJI and not have to register for all the stuff that they do. Um, but if you really want all the features that you can get out of a gimbal for a phone or, or a gimbal in general, yeah, for the phone, um, the DJI is going to be your best bet. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next, and Douglas asks, I, as I get to know my new M2 Pro Mac Mini, I'm truly impressed by the performance Apple has packed into such a small package. Could you see the Mini becoming the new studio and the Pro focusing on a forthcoming M2 Ultra chip? Nigel? So my M2 Mac Mini Pro uh, should have been here this weekend, but uh, uh, UPS decided it wasn't going to be. Um, I think the answer here is it's a function of time and a function of price point. I mean, at some point in time, you know, processors will get so small and so power friendly that we'll fit them in smaller and smaller boxes. I think for the next couple of cycles, as they're cleaning up their, their product line, you're going to see a small, medium and large in the Apple uh, sort of a, lap, a desktop system and i think that the studio fits in that medium which is probably three to five thousand dollar price point so i think that'll be there for a while until the processes become so super powerful they don't need it go ahead john douglas this is a very good question and and, and uh nigel and i have talked about this so it seems to be a little um confusing now which mac to to buy with the crossover of the mini and the and the studio and so it's going to be interesting to see what comes in the form of the pro to round out the the line but it's it's uh, it's an interesting point in apple's history and alex yeah I, i'd be really surprised if the studio goes anywhere um i think that the, the the issue is is that with the big with the larger fan um you know it creates an overlap so there's performance the, the chip performance is the same but the long-term performance for extended renders and, and extended compression and extended processing um, probably still sits inside of the, the the Mac Studio. It also has much more connectivity. I use up every single port on my Mac Studio on a regular basis, and so so I I don't think that those things necessarily um, stack over each other very effectively. Um, so I think that I think the Mini 
is can go up into that performance area, but I don't think that it replaces the studio. And I think that this, the, the pro, I think will be much higher than the studio. So I think you'll see about a 20% overlap between the Mac mini and the studio and about a 20% overlap. The low end uh, Macs, Mac pro will probably add ext extensibility. So we won't have to have external cards and so on and so forth the way we do with the Mac Studio. So it's low end will have performance that looks like a Mac Studio but has more extensibility than the Mac Studio. And then it will extend out. And I, I think the top end, if we look at the last one, the top end of the Mac Pro will probably be somewhere between thirty and $60,000. And it'll be a much different uh, you know, price, you know, performance and might overlap a little at the bottom where I want a Mac Studio, but I want um, some, I want to be able to insert cards, I might end up with a, with a Mac Pro. So I, I, don't, I think that they're very different lines. I think the real question is whether Apple keeps on making an iMac, which I'm not clear that they will. Next question. Zach Phillips in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania says, what's the panel's favorite method for recording 4K from their cameras before it gets into the ATEM and becomes HD? Splitting the signal? Hyperdeck loop through? And how's the latency? And uh, Zach notes it can't be in camera in his use case. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I agree with the in-camera not being a good choice because even my FX3 will do 4K 10-bit, but it also gets hot. So best not to do it that way. I would use an Atomos Ninja. There's a lot of different devices out there, including some from Blackmagic Design that can help you out. Uh, the trick is to find one that has a loop-through so that you can still feed the ATEM. Jonas? I, well, you could go after something like a loop-through. Um use an Atomos Ninja video assist, I would strongly recommend not doing that and splitting your signal. And if you already use um, a video hub or a router in front of your ATEM, you could just route uh, the camera signal also to the record text. That's how we mostly do it. We have all the cameras coming into our router. Router feeds the ATEM and the record text. That way we can also say, hey, let's actually record something else. We often have shoots where the SDI lines are two different places in mid live stream. We need to uh, tear down one camera here and bring it up there or need to switch wireless. So uh, then we just have a routing salvo that we push and that way the record decks also get the new signal. And Alex. Yeah, putting a router through makes a lot of sense in most of the time. And I, most of my systems have that. If you're just doing a handful of HDMI cameras and you're trying to get that out, I know the video assist is a very effective way to do that. It, it has a record. It, it, it actually connects as a webcam. So it's a great little smaller piece. As soon as you start getting into a more robust solution, I would definitely uh, lean toward Jonas's solution. It's what all of our kits have routers and external decks and all of those bits and pieces. And in the comment, Mickey mentions an AJA Kai Pro. Hopefully, I said that correctly. The Key Pro. Uh, key usually, pro. it's usually it's a Key Pro. I, you know the so a lot of us moved away from the. I mean, the Key Pros are, are 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 used in a lot of places. A lot of us moved away from them because they have proprietary um, uh, memory, uh, proprietary record areas that are very expensive. <laughs> so so it became one of those things. that was very expensive to support on longer records. Also, um, it had a history of um, invalidating all of the records if they're not ejected properly. Um, I don't know if that's been fixed in the newer ones, but I can tell you in the older ones, it created a lot of stress um, and to a point where we, I, I used to own eight, eight of them. <laughs> so I don't anymore. So, so anyway, that's all I'd say about the Key Pros. Next question. Craig Kadoki in Toronto, Canada is opening the can of worms. Here we go again. $12 a month now for a verified Facebook account. 
Yeah, here we go, Alex. <laughs> We're not used to it being free, but it's a great idea. I mean, like I, I know that people want to do this, but 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 creating, you know, charging a little bit of, for something and making people use of government ID will clean up a lot of things, and eventually you'll find that people just don't want to interact with people that aren't verified. Um, so a lot of you know this the 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 kind of having it wide open, wild wild west. Uh, is part of why it's made everybody crazy is because there's lots of bots, there's lots of people posing as other people, there's lots of other things there. And you're going to see this across the, I mean, Elon Musk, you know, kind of pushed it forward, but you're going to probably see uh, many others kind of go down that path. Uh, charging people a little bit of money cuts out a lot of the noise. Uh, making them use a government ID cuts out more noise. Um, and it'll make it, it will make it better for the folks that are willing to go through that process and it'll make it much worse for the people who don't. Um, this is also probably a response to the fact that advertising revenue uh, across the social networks is probably going to drop and continue to drop to almost nothing over the next decade. Uh, with ATT and uh, GDPR, it's going to get harder and harder and harder to pass data about people and make money through advertising. It's it's not a it's not a very solid solid solution. So subscription is starting to pick up more and more speed. John. Yeah, this is interesting. Mark Mark said that he would never charge for for Facebook services, and so they're changing their tune now. So I understand what Alex is saying. It it, it probably makes sense, but it's frustrating. Keely, I'm a big fan of freemium as a model. I think it's a fantastic way to be able to deliver what you want to be sort of a uh, a utility as a service, but. Uh, I agree with Alex with the security features are going to be very beneficial. The problem is, is that that's sort of one of those utilities that should be baked in. I totally believe in charging more money for better sound quality, removing ads, for example, because if you're not paying for something, you are the product. But I understand that the whole purpose and the whole business uh, impetus behind this is that the people with the money are the ones who want to use Facebook as an a, an actual presence and a business model. So it it makes sense that this is the way it's going. I just think it's a little bit backwards. And I'd like to see this get adjusted when Web3 becomes more prevalent and blockchain authentication becomes the real way we do things. Go ahead, Nigel. Nigel? Yeah, I think it's about to see a bifurcation here in, in the social media things. I think for those of us who are building a business around things, we pay for things we build businesses around. So if you're building a business around it, you should want to pay for it. You should want the service. You should want the support. You should want the capability. Now, I don't know some of these services can provide the support and capabilities we need, but long-term we're gonna pay for them. And if we're building a business around that, we should be comfortable with that. I think the issue is is what happens when all the commercial users are using it and paying for it, what are the non-commercials gonna use? So we've had this ability to hunt and peck within the, in the consumer market. That's probably gonna really uh, go down dramatically. So that's why I think when Alex says that the advertising will go away, that's why it's gone away. So the tools will still be there, but we'll pay for them. Jonas? I think as a lot of people probably on the panel have some interaction with uh, Facebook at some time, the support has been terrible in the past. So like being able to pay money to get better support. I know like a lot of friends that had ad agencies where you had to like do this management of ad accounts and like, hey, can you get your account? And even as a developer, it was sometimes really horrible just being able to verify that you are the person you are. So I think that's going to be great from like a, I mean, 
paying $12 for better support probably is worth it. But I think it's also going to be interesting how this impacts markets where Facebook basically is the internet where like we have a really Western view of Facebook. So it's going to be interesting how different markets get uh, impacted by this. And I hope that they leave it at verification and don't add removal of ads into it because that will then divide the platform in one more. Definitely. And a, an important thing to consider as well is I have an associate that almost every few weeks I see her account pop up in my feed and it's not her. And so now we've got to report it. She's got to announce to her community. That's not me. So this verification also removes that layer of, uh, I believe what I saw from the announcement was also any imposters that go out there, like they'll be more active in helping to ban that. So again, I think Keely had mentioned earlier, just like the security factor and how that impacts a part of how, you know, how people are running their accounts online. Alex? Yeah, and what's interesting is Google Plus a long time ago went to real names, and uh, they tried to apply that to YouTube, and the, 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 you know everyone went crazy. But the reality is, is that they were just ahead of their time. The try, you know, the the what, where we're going is people really having to be a person back online because any anybody who builds networks understands that as soon as you do that, you immediately the the, the community immediately calms down. <laughs> you know, like it, as soon as you as soon as you tie that together and make people accountable for what they're putting on online. Uh, everything slows down and becomes much more manageable. And so I think that, that people are now looking for more quality and less quantity uh, when it comes down to this. And I think you'll, you'll see that it's, um, it's going to pick up speed on, on almost every network. And before I get to Bill, thank you to everyone who participated in the poll. So we had a poll that says, are you going to get the Facebook, Instagram verification badge? And in the lead was people saying that I'm good where I I'm good where I'm, I am. And then after that, it was too expensive and then tied at the bottom of that. So for most of the community, it's a watch and wait. Bill? I had an experience as a very young radio reporter where I covered the Mountain Bell rate increase hearings uh, in front of the Corporation Commission, and it was really interesting. Part of the rollout of telephone service was an attempt to uh, have an, a mechanism inside where as many people as possible had access to telephones. There was the feeling that the community benefited by having everybody connected, and if you have an emergency notification or something like that, the ability to reach into almost every user and get a message to them efficiently was important enough so that they had funds set aside to lower the even the basic phone pots cost so that that became as widespread as possible. I do think with the internet, some sort of function like that, I mean, I know $12 a month doesn't seem a lot, but it's $120, $144 a year. It's There are a lot of people for whom that is a significant investment, particularly uh, people who do not have a business use. So I just hope they find that balance where we can be inclusive, as inclusive as possible for the people who may be coming up socially and and not make so many. I mean, how many subscriptions do I have now? And it doesn't bother to me, but it's a big deal. I want to say one thing. They're not taking Facebook away from people who don't pay. They're just saying that you're just going to get a... You're going to be verified. <laughs> so, so they're so it's same same with phone. Phone, you get a basic service, but you have to pay more to get better service. And so, yeah, I think I'm it's, just it's saying not, that it's not very much different. There's okay. a lot of people on the and the low end of the economic scale who deserve to be verified as well and not pay twelve dollars a month to be themselves. Next question. Andy Kokendorf for Vieira, Florida. Any plans to embed a YouTube audio stream player in Mukana mobile pages? It would be great to listen to the panel while out and about. Alex. 
Yeah, you can already uh, listen to it if you if you look at the there's a, in your if you're in the mobile version of it, you can actually um, click on it and listen to it in the upper corner. It's not as stable as it, it should be. Um, actually, Juan Carlos um, uh, Juan C. Carlos is, is our built on, and we just have to get it out. So I'll, I'll talk to Juan about it. I, there's some stuff I'd like to fix with the interface, but or, but it works great, and I, I it's how I listen to the show when I'm not on it. Um, and it, it works in the background. It does all the things it needs to do. So we already have that. It, I don't think you really want YouTube uh, playing. Um, you, it would be more complicated that way. We have an actual stream playing that actually sounds better than the show does on YouTube. <laughs> so, so it's like, cause it's got a little Mickey magic uh, added, added to that um, as it goes out the stream. Jonas? You could also, while that app isn't out yet, use any IceCast player and pipe pipe the IceCast URL into that and that should play as well. Yeah, and, and, there's, well. and we're already producing an IceCast play. You know, the IceCast, there's an IceCast URL that's already being used inside of the system now um, that you can listen to. If you if you open up the mobile version or the light version and you click on the upper left, you'll see a little speaker there and that'll play it out. Um, the app is just a lot more stable and we'll, fig- we'll, we'll, we'll get it published here soon. Next question. Zach Phillips in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Is there a cheap, under $1,000 U.S. pan tilt head that works with Companion? Jonas? So it's almost under $1,000. I have the RS2 behind me. And since the RS3 came out, you probably can pick up an RS2 pretty um, cheap on the U.S. market. And then what you need to buy is an APCR from Middle Things. That then opens it up to be controlled as a gimbal. You can use a controller, but they also have a great API into Companion that allows you to control it that way. They have a preset that you can use um, for it. And then there's also, um, if you have a Blackmagic camera on it, you can also control the Blackmagic camera through it. Alex. Jonas, would you be willing to do a lab somewhere in the future on how to do that? Sure. Have you done it? All right. All right. That's all I want to ask. And Courtney. But isn't that middle things device like $1,499 to control it uh, over a BitFocus companion? So that kind of doesn't put it under $1,000, right? Well, it's about 500 bucks to get the box to control it through companion. But I'm guessing you probably should be able to get an RS2 used under 500 bucks-ish. So like it's almost there, but like you'll get one of the best motions i think you can get for a p for that price it's it really is amazing and if you had the auto track it's even better i have some we put it at the back of our church and just had it track the pastors they were moving and it just worked great and everyone was impressed and i was able to do it alone without needing a cam up following them and yeah it's a great system Good call, Alex, in the comments. They're excited about the lab, the future lab. So we're waiting on that. Yodis. Next question. Next question comes from Zach. Uh, I'm sorry, Craig Kodoki in Toronto, Canada. Has Microsoft got the drop on Apple with 3D models in PowerPoint? I just saw this tutorial that was posted last month, and he's got a link there. Courtney? Well, I don't know about the drop, but it's, uh, you know, it's been around. Uh, Microsoft has incorporated uh, 3D models into Windows, uh, including little animated models. You know, this is a 3D viewer that was built into Windows 10. Um, and uh, it, it, they actually don't include it with Windows 11 because I think they were trying to avoid some, you know, EU uh, problems of monopolistic practices. So they pulled it out and put it in the Windows Store. But you still have a 3D viewer with a large selection of 3D models available, and they work in PowerPoint. 
and have since Windows 10. Um, so I don't know whether it works on the Mac version of PowerPoint, so you may be able to use it as well on the Mac version of PowerPoint. And I don't know when Keynote is going to incorporate it. Maybe Alex has some insight. Alex? Yeah, they are definitely ahead, and it looks really impressive. The video that was posted there looks great. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that a lot of us think that sometime this year, Keynote will support 3D. The big thing that, that this is kind of the what happens is that um, Microsoft and other folks get ahead. They just don't think about the entire ecosystem. So, like, the, the way that you have to go up and get the models and find the models and figure them all out is um, is painful. And that's why it probably doesn't have a lot of uptick. Um, you know, it's it's fine for us. Someone like us can go up to Sketchfab or many or, or Thing, Thingiverse or other things, find out what we want, figure out which ones. But there's a lot of dead ends for business users, um, and so it would have to be something that, you know, that, that's the, always the problem. I think that what's going to happen with with um, USDZ is that it's already supported in a lot of other places on the Mac, um, and I'm going to guess that. We'll see a lot more support across 3D apps, across, you know, platforms, a lot of other things that will all happen at the same time. Apple tends to be better at building that ecosystem um, than other folks who just throw it out there and we'll see how it works. Um, I don't think that's how this is going to go. So so I think that that's probably why we'll see USDZ kind of uh, go forward when it when it comes out, because there's just more support and there's more drive to it than than what Microsoft's done. Like most of us didn't know it was there and it's been there for years. So that's the problem. Next question. Next one comes to us from Ian Alford in London. Until we get a public release of Mukana, what other methods are there for members of a Zoom panel to indicate that they want to answer a question behind the scenes? Keely? You can get super scrappy in a variety of ways. And of course, I'm going to default to Discord because that's what I do here. And one thing that I did with uh, my podcast cohorts when we record, we've got a, a large group, uh, six of us usually, who are recording a podcast together. And I've been trying to bring some of the principles that I've learned from here in Office Hours into that recording, but doing it obviously in the scrappy way. And we've been using Discord back channels to be able to put up our hands by using emoji reactions or just just emojis in the actual post. It sorts it by chronological order and you can have that kind of communication. But back channeling is, uh, is, a, is a way to go and you can modify that to whatever system works best for your particular group. Go ahead, Alex. And if you're using something like Zoom ISO, a lot of people can just raise their hands inside of Zoom, just raise their digital hand. It won't show up because the Zoom ISO isn't going to pull that out. So you can actually, um, you, you know, we're in this meeting, we could do that for each, each one. We wouldn't be able to kind of have the same level of control that we have, but it would give us some of the tools that we need. Next question. Don't, uh, Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia says, panelists, I have to do a house of worship performance, which will be a hybrid event. I know I couldn't talk him out of it using Cinemaker and, or Mimo, Mimo Live with iOS devices as cameras. What are your recommendations for doing that? Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I think both of the uh, Cinemaker I haven't used as much as Memo, so I'm not as familiar with it, but it looks like, it looks like a pretty solid solution right now. The um, The main thing is, is that really look at how you might be able to do at least some of those cameras be wired to the computer that you're doing. They will work on wireless, but once you bring a lot of people in, your wireless connection to those cameras may not become as stable as they were before. So finding ways that you can get some of them close enough to what you can do so that you can actually connect them to the computer um, will make a big difference um, as, you, as you move forward. Next question. 
Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana, says, can we do a second hour on Zoom apps? What people are using, what to avoid, and so forth. Alex? Yeah, sure. Um, just talk to Josh or put it in the second hour suggestions. Uh, I think it's a great idea. I think we'll probably wait uh, for the next update um, to Zoom just to let that one go through and then see what's available after that. Next question. Douglas Carmichael says, has anyone used an iPad Pro as their everyday carry device for traveling? Go ahead, Keely. I did this for one season when I was an assistant coach with the University of Calgary Dinos field hockey team. And so part of my work process was I was receiving match footage on thumb drives and I was importing that. I was using LumaFusion to create clips and I was doing all my communications through that. And yes, you can do everything that you want to do on an iPad Pro that you would do on, you know, say a, a laptop, but you can't do it quickly and you can't necessarily do it very well. So I found the trade-off with all the time that I spent just not being able to use keyboard shortcuts and macros and all the things that I depend on to really speed up my workflow were sort of lost to me and that made it less fun. So all of the benefits of the mobility just weren't worth it for me. Go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, if I'm doing an overnight business trip or a couple of days, I might just take my 12.9 and uh, with the magic keyboard, which I think is or something equivalent, that is really the basic requirement. And I can pretty much go for 24, 48 hours business trip without my laptop, unless like Keely, I have to sit and there's a huge amount of content creation work to be done. At that point, I wish I had my Mac. But if it's just general office, it's email, it's all this type of stuff, then you can really survive without without a, a full-size machine for a few days, max. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I find that uh, I, I, I'm the same, same as Nigel. I can do this for a couple of days. I can go out and not not use my laptop. And the problem I really have is that when I need to do this show or be on, on a show like this or be in meetings where I want to use the equipment that I use outboard, then it becomes hard to use the, the iPad. So I, th this laptop is mostly used just for meetings. <laughs> and, and then I use it a little bit when I need to type some stuff in, but almost all of everything else I do is on my iPad. I tried it a couple of times last year while I was traveling just because carrying the laptop and all of the accessories to do like content creation was a bit of a challenge. But what I, if that's something that you want to do just for the day-to-day -day tasks that have been said, also go to YouTube. There are a lot of people who have some hacks. So that's what I did. I was like, okay, I need, these are some functions that I do. Not like Keely's, Keely's point, not the content creation part, because that one is a challenge, especially since you move so quickly and speed is is a part of that. And I haven't done you, LumaFusion or any of those just yet. So um, just going and seeing how other people use it for travel, your basic business day-to-day -day communication works well. And then just finding some of those hacks along the way. Alex? I have found that I'm starting to do more and more. I used to have this kind of pattern of how I build uh, presentations that I start in notes and then I open up Keynote on my iPad and I, I sketch all the things that I want. Then I go into my Mac because I can move faster to get things done. Then I go and then I display it, display it from the iPad for the, for the actual meeting. Um, so it's this back and forth. I'm finding that I'm now spending more and more time on the iPad. There's tools that I can simply just can't get on the Mac. Um, so, so like being able to, it was something that I learned in a little, Apple class that you can you can just select an object with your pencil and just animate it by just rolling it around across the screen um, and and those kinds of things. There's lots of little 
little hidden things inside of things like Keynote that you can only do on your iPad. And that's actually having me spend more and more time on my iPad as I slowly get better at using, for instance, Keynote, which is, while I'd love to say that I'm a, 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 you know, I've done a lot of high-end computer graphics, but I probably spend more time in Keynote than any other app that I use. Make sure you've got a dongle with you as well, I would say, because you just never know when something comes up that you would actually, you know, USB or whatever to get documents across. So that was my one of my saving graces. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Up next, do you think the Mac Studio is a one and done as some podcasts are speculating and that the Mac Pro will get all the attention? Nigel? I'd refer the right honorable gentleman to the answer that was given earlier. Um, for, I think we covered some of this ground. Um, I think that the, the, the high-end thing's always going to get a lot of coverage by by the blogs and the and the people who want to talk about a twenty or thirty or forty thousand dollar thing that you know is out of most of our ranges. Mickey made a point in the chat about count the ports. You know, the the studio has that the mini dozen is is just two or three extra ports, and I think that will be part of the benefit of that middle range box. Bill. Yeah, I think Mac Pros at that level are all about bragging rights and things like that. I did note that back when I learned about Infinity Fabric, which is the the, the processor-to-processor kind of direct connection that uh, Apple had engineered back, gosh, I guess it was about eight or nine years ago, uh, as these new M-series chips get more and more powerful with more and more capabilities, the ability to paralyze them uh, – paralyze? Is that the word? <laughs> Parallelize, I guess, is closer to it. Um, many chips in there can theoretically at least make a high-end machine astonishing. So I don't know whether people are going to be doing those kind of genomic studies and protein foldings or whatever the people at the high end of the scientific world do with these amazing machines. But just to have bragging rights in that space, I think is something that Apple might see as just um, something worth pursuing. Courtney? I think the studio is going to stick around as a mezzanine product between the minis and the pro because uh, the pro is for uh, is going to be hopefully for people who want internal expandability, the avail availability to put extra cards in, upgrade it yourself, add more storage, et cetera, internally in the machine, uh, that the uh, you know is not well supported by the studio or the mini. So, the people that need that expandability and and super high performance uh, will go to the pro. But the mezzanine people, the people that aren't looking to uh, put you know other video cards or other types of expandable, you know, interface equipment inside their PC, you know, will go for the studio and still have a lot of the M2 or M3 uh, power, but without the expandability. And Alex. And I think beyond just the, you know, whatever the bragging rights are, there is absolutely a use for a $50,000, $60,000 machine. I used to own a bunch of them <laughs> that, that did specific things that all had to happen inside the machine. So we would have many uh, graphics cards or many other processes or tons and tons of RAM and storage. Uh, so I think that it is a, it, it, we looked for a long time buying these 20, 30, 40,000, $50,000 boxes as a, they were, all of them were Linux. You know, they were not, they were not something we could actually run um, on a, on a Mac. And so we thought we were going to have to eventually leave the Mac platform and the Mac, the new Mac Pro or the newish Mac Pro that was out, you know, told us that we could still do this stuff actually that we were doing on, on it. Um, so um, I think it's very important that Apple builds these because there's definitely a market, maybe not as large a market as the Mac Mini, but there's definitely a market that you want to keep in the ecosystem because 
they are the a high performance user that is going to um, continue to create an ecosystem that says you can start here and get all the way to where you want to go because there's no other place to go. There's no, I can't build my own Mac. So it's very, very important. And John? Here's the challenge with the pro architecture is the M class has built in RAM, onboard RAM in, into the into the silicon. So how do you upgrade RAM on a pro when you've got built in RAM and into that architecture? It's going to be very interesting to see how they handle that. And the other problem is you've got you've got NVIDIA with these specialized uh cards for GPU and for for AI now, and you don't have that on the pro series. So you can't do protein flow and you can't do scientific uh, applications like that on, on these machines. Next question. Samuel Nordvik in Norway says, how well does the web controller work with the Sony FR7? Jonas? It works really great and it works really great remotely. Um, it's probably one of the best web controllers for PT sets that I've seen. And Alex? I agree. It's one of the best once it's connected. It, 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 when it disconnects, getting it back together, I've had it to be a little bit quirky um, as I use it. But over the overall, so that the connection process is a little off, and I would love to have more of the actual color controls um, in the in the thing. I think there's an interface for like a live color control that pops up. Now they have a piece of hardware that does that, so that's probably why they don't add it. As far as setting up a computer and basic usage, I agree with Jonas that it is the it's the best that I've seen so far. Um, I just wish it would have a little bit more color control beyond just loading LUTs. Um, and I wish the connection would just know that if I don't have a new one around, I'm just going to keep connecting to the one that I have. Um, I think that, that that's a little bit uh, clunky um, you know, in that area. But overall, really, really fantastic software. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer, VR Florida. Is there any issue in using DisplayLink software drivers for live streaming, screen capture, and video switching? And he's noting Wirecast here. It seems that DisplayLink is my only option to get more than two monitors on an M2 Pro laptop. Thanks. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, DisplayLink uses a virtual video card, uh, which actually makes the CPU do all the video card work. So, and it's also hampered by the fact that you're using probably, uh, maybe their newer ones support USB 3 interface, uh, but I think most of them are USB 2 compatible. So they're trying to compress all that video down to USB 2. So if you're using any high resolution video, it's going to be sluggish. It may not upgrade, uh, update correctly on the monitor that is running off the display link. It may not have as good a color depth to maintain its speed. So. I've always experienced problems, but I haven't used. The, I don't have the any of the latest Display Link uh, outboard uh, uh, pieces of hardware, so I can't really speak from experience there. Next question. Vic Hernandez in Springfield, Missouri says, "Are the IEMs in-ear monitors Alex uses the Linsole KZ XS tens? Amazon has them available for thirty nine dollars US today." Go ahead, Nigel. Well, I'll let Alex talk for what Alex has. I have the ZAXs, which are a little more expensive. Um, I think they just have better drivers. I think the two two key things for me were, you have to decide if you want the mic or don't want the mic. I didn't get the mic. I have enough mics without adding another mic in. The mistake I made is I wish I'd bought the black ones, not the silver ones. So that just keep an eye out for those two things. And Alex? 
Yeah, I've been really happy with the ones that I bought. I bought a lot of them um, and um, maybe 10 or 15 pairs because we send them out to people too. I just go, here, just use these. There was a request to get, there was a cheaper one that was like $26 and someone asked about this a couple weeks ago. And uh, I did test those and there's no high end at all. <laughs> it's like underwater. So I, it was $26 that I'm probably not going to get back. Um, but yeah, the um, the KZ, uh, the, the ones that I've bought a lot of are the KZZS um, 10 Pros. Um, are the ones that I've that I have um, gotten quite a few. Uh, what's interesting for me is that I don't know if this is the, exactly the same one. They have so many of them that it's hard to tell. But those are the ones that I that I've had. There are ones that are more expensive. They're like one hundred and twenty dollars or one hundred and thirty dollars. I was like, I wonder if more expensive is better. And I bought them, and the answer is no. <laughs> they don't fit in my ear as well. So they sound fine, but they they were less comfortable. So uh, I did find the ones that, and and again, the ones that I have uh, purchased in the uh, in the past are, yeah, they're, they're $40. So, um, $40 or 39. Um, they're the, yeah, the, the four BA plus one DD, um, they're $40 right now. And I'm using them right now. I wouldn't mix, uh, an album with them. They're not accurate. Um, but I have found that they show me a lot of detail and they're very, very comfortable and I wear them for hours a day and they've been great. Next question. Next one comes to us from Tobias Moss in Minneapolis again. How do you create good economics around band merch? How to buy quality at good price? How to price your merchandise? Tips and tricks? Creative and or unusual merch ideas? Go ahead, Nigel. So I think this comes down to exactly how much of this are you ordering? If you're ordering a small run, then you are going to be uh, dealing with expensive costs and limited use. If you're going to deal with a very, very large run, there are huge economics in that. But now you have to put somewhere to store it, which then means do you have to get a warehouse, you're going to use your spare bedroom, or do you want the provider of your merch to be your storage and then call it off? And I think, so the first question is, is how do you, how much of these do you think you sell? Is it going to travel with the band? If it's going to travel with the band, you probably uh, want to limit the amount uh, of different types you're going to have because you're going to have to manage sizing. And you should really be careful uh, to know your audience to make sure you get small, medium, large, extra large, extra, extra large. Get that right given the band, the type of people that come and see the band uh, might give you some guidance there. Um, The the very fun stuff, uh, which is very expensive in merch, uh, can be very fragile and can go out of date very quickly. So try and stick with the things you think most people are going to want. T-shirts, maybe mugs or koozies, stuff like that. The more interesting it gets, the more difficult it gets to shift it. And Mitchell? Uh, First rule of band merch is make sure the band is good. Um, And uh, make sure that if you're going to sell merch around that band, make sure that it reflects the band's attitude. So if they're heavy metal, make sure you get some heavy metal merch in there. I'm going to go off on a completely different direction in terms of bringing in NFTs, because I think this is one of the most exciting applications that musicians are using in order to add experiences and collectible elements to their fans' interactions with them. So it would take days to talk about all the things that, that fans are doing now in order to add those elements and they can be physical, but the non-fungible element adds a little bit more value because things could be a bit more rare and that sort of thing. So I would encourage you to look at the world of NFTs for that and see whether there are ideas that you can spring from there that get away from maybe 
necessarily physical elements, but experiences and access and things like that. The fans are really looking for these days. And Alex. Yeah, so I've bought a lot of merch. Um, people used to send me merch. <laughs> a lot of it. I try to think about like, what do I actually use? Um, I think a good mug is actually a pretty good one, not something crazy. I, I got one of the Darling Buds, some little band in the in the eighty in the nineties. Still have it. <laughs> so, so so it was a it was a nice one. And and really thinking about that design is good. T shirts and hats are kind of a, a, a you know that's your bread and butter. Uh, I. A lot of times, if I find a shirt, oftentimes at the Apple store, I look at who makes it. <laughs> and so and so I, I look at the, the thing and I start researching it. I'd much rather sell a more expensive uh, piece of merch than one that's going to fade uh, quickly uh, or fall apart. And so so I usually, you if you build something that's great, make sure that it's high quality. Um, there's a company that called Blue Marlin that I think kind of came apart, but I think might have come back together. They have fitted caps. Um, caps like that tend to be used a lot more than than a lot of the other caps that are sold, these kinds of things. Um, and then outside of that, one of the things that we found was successful is eight, uh, I'm sorry, 17 by 11 posters. And the reason for that is that they're big enough that you can put a couple of them on the wall, um, and but they're small enough that you can put them in a folder to save them as a collectible. And so we found that those, those that style poster on a really thick cardstock uh, was really was really popular um, as far as that goes. And you get a custom one that you can only get on on the tour. The main thing you want to make sure of is that whatever you sell, you can only buy it on the tour. Um, if you really want to create perceived value, you resell those at a higher price, um, a much higher price uh, on eBay. <laughs> so you sell them on the tour for 25 bucks and then sell them on to yourself on eBay at 80 you know, so and then so it, it creates this weird perception that people have about the value of those if it's a bigger if it's a bigger artist. And Bill, I used to chair a charity thing that was pretty large, and we ordered T-shirts. And I just want to speak to T-shirts for a minute. I, it after two years, I wanted out of that side of things so badly because it started out with just a, okay, how many extra small, small, medium, large, and extra large, and two X do we want? That alone was a hard management problem. But then somebody year uh, brought up one year. Well, we should probably add French cut, and maybe people want tank tops. And the next thing you know, I'm in this meeting after meeting to try to figure out an efficient assortment for an unknown audience about managing t-shirts drove me crazy i will never do that again i'm sorry next question oh alex what oh i'm sorry go ahead alex so some bands are uh, are actually um, doing it where you can order the shirts and they'll send them to you. And it has a couple, a couple advantages to that. Is number one is they print to, uh, and you don't get to walk away with it, um, but the smaller bands are doing this and you get a great mailing list because <laughs> you get you get the mailing list for the people that you're sending this stuff to. So they have little QR codes. You can pop it. There's, I can't think of the service, but it's we've seen it. We've seen it used a couple of times. You see the, the shirts across there. You get to touch them and then you just look at the QR code. You hit it. You hit a merch um, uh, uh, gateway, you then order it, and now they have uh, your your contact information as well as sending you the shirt right to your house, and they don't have to have lots of uh, excess uh, production. Next, well, we're at the next question. Go ahead, Bill. Ian Alfred in London is up next. What are the key things to consider when designing a logo for a new series of digital first events I'm planning? Go ahead, Mitchell. Wow, that's a whole lab for a or a second hour. Uh, Logos for digital first, it has to be video friendly. And that means that uh, you can't go with too much detail because you have to, if no matter what the design is, it has to look good white on black and it has to look good small. So if it's down here as a little bug, uh, it needs to not have so much detail that all that is lost. 
Uh, text is usually a bad idea when it gets that small. And when it gets really big, you got to be careful because sometimes it might alias poorly and uh, just gets messy. So I'd keep it simple and uh, just keep in mind it's got to be video friendly. Alex. Uh, yeah. The big thing with logo design is think about it on a hat. <laughs> if it has to be stitched onto a hat, um, we, we just talked about merch. Uh, but think about that because if it can't, you, it's probably too complicated a logo to have, um, especially if you're doing production. It has to be one, be able to be able to be displayed with one color without any shading <clears throat> and be effective. Um, and it has to be able to be reprinted over and over and over again. Uh, it's generally very simple. If you look at large corporate logos, they give you a good sense. People spend a lot of money on those. Um, you'll see that the progression of almost every logo is that it started off weird and, and complicated and ended up being simple. Um, that's how everybody goes. You can just jump to the simple part and save yourself a lot of time. Um, there are great logo design books, like design logo books. I, I have books and books and books on logos. And if you look at modern logo design, um, what you're going to see is just a lot of really simple shapes that describe it. Again, getting away generally from text, if you can, um, for those logos is effective because at least they need to be able to stand on the their own uh, without that, unless you're using the logo in it like FedEx. And there's a lot of messaging in a lot of those, whether it's Amazon or FedEx or whatever. Um, really study logo design a little bit before you uh, dive into it. And Bill. Yeah, there's a term of art in the marketing and advertising world called brand book, and that's a company's standards as to how to use things. And it, I'm not suggesting you need to do one of these before you design your logo. What I'm saying is if you can get one of those on the Internet or find a, or get a hold of one of them, it will send you to thinking in a lot of ways that you wouldn't think of before, like can this logo be reversed? Uh, are There are standards there to make it part of a bug or part of a lower third on video, and that's a different kind of form than the print version. And we were just talking about merchandise and the ability to stitch a logo. All of these things, if you read through a brand book for a relatively large company, you will see they address all those things, and it just gets you thinking in what a logo needs to be to work in a lot of areas and to last, if this one's going to last. Next question. Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia is back in with, I'm having to do some mobile setup this year. Should I get a camera or use the built-in camera on the M1 Pro 14-inch MacBook Pro? Uh, indir uh, I, a Something 360 is not in the budget. I should have looked at that ahead of time. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Keely. I think Tony's talking about the Insta360, which ah, uh, we all know that Alex is a massive fan of. I have that exact <laughs> MacBook Pro with the 14-inch, and I'm actually very shocked at how many times I'll get lazy and I'll turn off the ZVE 10 and use that camera built in and people are like, you look fantastic. What have you done to your skin? And everybody gets really uh, very happy about it. So for talking head purposes, as long as you follow the cardinal rules of getting good lighting, although this camera does, uh, sorry, as I'm saying this, I'm pointing at my MacBook Pro. This camera does very well, even in low light situations, but lighting is always the most important thing. And then your actual physical angle. So if you take care of those two things, I think you'll do okay. But external cameras tend to be the preference when you get to that point in your budget. And Alex? I don't think any of the, any of the, the generally, I don't think that any of them other than the Insta360 and maybe the Brio compete with the new, the newer MacBook Pros. So I don't think that if you're not going to, if you're, I think that you just get either an external camera at a Brio or higher, Brio or Insta360, or just use the internal one. You can also use your iPhone. Next question. Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana is back uh, with a big link and then says, but with two Mac minis and an extreme ISO switchy, is this crazy or crazy useful? Alex. 
I'm going to admit, all I'm going to refer to is that we couldn't get through it because it was it was too late and it's too long of a video. And I tried to I tried to get the 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 thing. If you post it tomorrow morning early, uh, if you post this again tomorrow morning really early, we might have some time to look at it. But it's like a 20 minute video and it looks silly. And I mean, they just didn't they didn't get to the point. <laughs> so so I can't I can't figure out what they were actually trying to do. If that if that link is accurate, I just couldn't find it. So um, uh, post it early again tomorrow and and um, and let us know and we'll we'll, we'll talk about it. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's looking for advice. He's getting, uh, if I do end up getting a 14-inch MacBook Pro, what size of portable monitor would be the most useful size for an audio tech table during a typical event? 15-inch, 17-inch? Go ahead, Alex. I mean, typically we are getting very small ones, like 10 inches, or we're getting 24 inches, and we don't really have a lot of them that are in between those as, as we start to build those things out. And Keely? Right in front of me, I have two portable 17-inch monitors, and I know this sounds crazy that I'm using portable monitors in what is clearly my office, but I actually will set them up on my rolling rig, and I will use them in all kinds of different scenarios. So having them portable really makes a difference. The 17-inch, I find, actually is really quite good. These are 2K monitors made by the Mowin. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. And they, they do fine. I'm not probably the video snob that many of the others around here are, but I find that that is a nice size. And when I need to demonstrate to other people, so for example, when I was on the road with teams or with umpires and I want to show the match footage, I can just sort of turn it around and it seems like a good compromise size for being able to show people material and yet not have it totally take over my suitcase. So your mileage is going to vary depending on exactly what it is that you want to show off on that take table. But, you know, g give a 17-inch a shot. Next question. Next one comes from Douglas Carmichael. Has anyone used Stage Manager in Mac OS Ventura? I've been using it on my 2017 MacBook Pro, and it has made a single 15-inch screen a lot more productive. Go ahead, Nigel. Actually, I found the opposite. I found it uh, a more difficult system to use and actually ended up turning it off. Um, the managing of the windows was just easy the way I was used to doing it. So my guess is if you can get into the into the flow and into the usage model, it might be great. But I, I turned it off. Next question. David Brady in New York City, looking to leverage facilities at my Sunday space for non-religious matters. Are there general rate books for hosting things like movie screenings, book readings, seminars, performances, and so forth? Go ahead, Courtney. I don't know about the general rate books, but I'd be careful since you're using a, a, a religious facility for non-religious purposes. If you're going to be conducting screenings or putting on live plays, uh, make sure it's a non-equity theater under that kind of contract. So you're, since you're in New York City, you don't get in trouble with the actors' unions. Uh, keep it under 99 seats. Uh, be careful if you're screening any copyrighted uh, films because you'll have to uh, that's a public exhibition and you could get tagged for copyright infringement since you're not using it uh, in a uh, non-taxable environment you know of the religious umbrella so uh, be careful about those two things uh, I don't know about rates you'll have to depend upon the uh, the local you know look around and look look at what the uh, smaller local theaters are doing uh, for for rates for pricing go ahead Alex 
Yeah, as soon as you put something out that says that someone from BMI and ASCAP will come and, talk and visit you, and, and uh, you can actually talk them down a fair bit because they're very conservative in their guesses, and they'll usually uh, first start off with uh, 10 times what you actually should be paying. So um, so just know that you can push back a little bit and talk to them about what you're actually doing to uh, to do that, and they will they will negotiate. Um, the um, Anyway, but the uh, the other thing to look at is uh, just call around, find out what the numbers look like, um, and then underbid it typically a little bit because you're getting started and your services won't be as shiny and smooth at the beginning. So I would, um, you know, undercut it a little bit because you're just not, not because you're trying to undercut, but because you probably don't have the same service as someone who's been there for a bit um, to, to have all the creature comforts. And so you want to take that into account. Next question. Bob Sturtevant, who's helping us with our Talak traversal today by coming in from Nairobi, Kenya, says, I have recently shot video with my Instant 360 X3. Any recommendations on how to best share with friends and allow the 360 experience? Where are 360 gurus? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Alex. <laughs> I was like, Alex doesn't... <laughs> I was in host mode. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, uh, the... Um, uh, um, yeah. So, so anyway, the, um, I, sorry, I'm just looking at the, at the thing here. So, um, uh, the, um, uh, I got a little distracted by our panel chat. <laughs> so oh, anyway, no so, sorry about that. Bill, do so, you yeah, mind so reading it again? There's a meta, no. there's a meta, um, uh, we have, a um, some meta apps that you can upload files to. I don't know exactly what they are, but the, 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 the Insta, or not the Insta 360, but the, um, the meta, the quest is a pretty good one. And there's some, you'll find some apps inside of quest that you can load videos or go to web pages. And so you'll end up loading it up into a, into a remote, which, which you can then load it into and see it. Um, there's, that's probably the easiest way to show someone. It used to be Google cardboard, uh, but I think they've kind of end of life that uh, it was actually pretty effective at being able to throw those things up. Um, but we found that the meta quest is probably the easiest one. And then just pulling in a, a couple comments from the chat there, Chris says, post it to YouTube and they can view it in many ways there. And Jeffrey says pretty much the same, YouTube in an unlisted mode is what he uses. So thank you very much. We've just wrapped our first hour. Thank you producers for all of your questions. And now as we transition to the second hour, transition is a great word because instead of talking about public relations, which content creation is a form of public relations, it's a part of the entire you know marketing ecosystem, we're actually going to discuss content creation and strategies for creating content, um, especially with just the rise that has been happening with AI and people being excited of all the things that you can now create much more swiftly, easily, and and how that will impact. I think it, during yesterday's chat, there were comments of just like how AI will impact the quality of content. So during this hour, go ahead, producers, and submit all of your questions around content creation, the process, any questions that you may have on what a, what's a great workflow, and we'll get to them at that point in time. And I wanted to take a, a moment while the panel gets ready to raise their hands and we'll have our, our discussion as we normally do is fundamentally no matter what level you're at in your if on the tech side of things but especially if you run a business or working on your brand before you can even really create content you have to get clear on your brand identity or clear on what kind of message you want to communicate. As we've heard from a number of people, guests like Cher Jones and Nigel has mentioned and 
just a lot of our conversations, a brand is not who you say you are. It's who your customers say you are. So your content, you definitely want that to reflect in your content. So if that is that you know that you are looking at thought leadership and you're trying to position yourself as such, well, yes, TikTok has a lot of dance content and that works for that platform, but does that make sense for you? And it's very possible because there are a number of people who have been able to leverage just being fun and goofy and showing that side of who they are. But then there are also people who use that platform and they're just sharing a lot of gems and and insights. Um, Brady Share, he's one that I follow. He does a great job of just sharing on, he has a tool, a SaaS product that speaks to churches and how to help them with social media. And his content is very simple. He gets in front of a camera, he's got a microphone in his hand, and all he does is answer questions. And that being a really simple form of content, but it's effective and it matches with his brand. So we'll get started with Nigel, go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to build on the, on the point you're making earlier. I I always tell people that you've got to get your value proposition right. And this may find sound quite a formal thing to do, but I think it's worth if you spend a few minutes thinking about what your value proposition is. And to me, a value proposition is a really a four-stage thing. First of all, it identifies who your audience is. Who are you trying to talk to? The second thing it identifies is what are they looking for? What 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 are they coming for? The third is... What are you doing? What are you presenting? What are you giving them to match what they're looking for? And fourth, and maybe the most important, what makes you different? And I think if you can spend some time filling that out, and make, sometimes easy to do with two or three of you, but if you're on your own, you can still do it. It doesn't have to be very formal. You don't have to publish it. But that structure of having a sense of your value proposition will help you keep your content focused. And what mo attracts most of us, or at least attracts me going back to the same content provider, is when I know what I'm going to get from them and they consistently deliver it. That means they are clear about their audience, what the audience is looking for, what they provide and what makes them different. And I think where people go wrong is they lose track of that and suddenly they go down spirals. They may do choose to do it deliberately, that's, that's fine, but they go down avenues and byways and side streets because they get seduced into some content that is actually outside their brand or outside their value proposition. And that's a great way to lose your audience. Go ahead, Bill. Um, I don't think it's surprising that in biblical thought in the beginning was the word is kind of how you all begin. And for me, in any time I'm approaching creating content of any kind, my number one goal is to capture thoughts in a way that I can go back revisit them, manipulate them, and refine them. So everybody's going to do it differently. I like to sit down in front of my computer with just a notepad up and start to blast down whatever comes to my head, knowing that it doesn't have to be perfect when I start it, but eventually it's I'm going to approach it in a systematic way to identify key ideas, to do the kind of thing that Nigel was just talking about. I mean, what's important? What is less important? What are my goals for this? It may start out with that 10,000 foot view of the whole project, but then I'm going to actually narrow it down to action steps and then down to eventually having to take, whether it's an outline or a series of notes or whatever your process is, and start to craft an actual structural 
I, I was going to say document, but it doesn't have to be a document. It can be anywhere that you may, it can be a crayon list for any, all anybody cares, but it's just organizing your thoughts and then starting to convert that into something that can be shared. And then to me, a big part of it is to not just rely on myself, but to actually share it and start getting buy-in from the people who are working on the project with me. And again, you can't really do that until you have something concrete that you can show them and get feedback on. And that's the process of iteration and creation and refining, which usually, in my experience, gets you to better stuff. That refinement part of things, Bill, I think is really important because people think that they work so hard to get it right the first time when it's even the products that we use it's the iterative process that makes them better getting the feedback from your customers from your stakeholders to be able to say oh well that that's why analytics are important that ooh the drop time on this youtube video we know we need to maybe not talk about that or say more of that and that just helps to create better and better content and content that is valuable that's the word, the value that you're providing for your audience. Alex? Yeah, just what you just said there. Um, I, I think that the thing that a lot of people that we work with, I do a lot of corporate communication, um, is uh, they think about what they want to say, but they don't think about what their audience wants to hear. <laughs> so so they, they have a list of the things that they want to talk about and how they want to promote things and how they want to push things, but they're not thinking about how is this content useful to the people that are watching it? And, and if you don't figure that out, you get that's why they get really low numbers on their views is because it doesn't really serve anybody. What you need is something that is um, not talking about your product, but talking about the, you know, answering the problem and showing what those things are. Now, you may be including that product in that and you may be even talking about how that product works, but that's a service. You know, when there's a video that says this is how to use the product, that's a service to the people who might be interested in it or talking about those high things. But think about that service to the audience before you think about what you want to say or how you want to promote something. Um, and I think that if you stay really, really focused on what is the audience getting out of this, um, you, you, you do better. Go ahead, Keely. So as somebody who's been a full-time content creator, see, I even have it on my sweatshirt, if you can see that, uh, for a few years now, I've been hearing all these conversations and really trying to educate myself about this whole value thing. And it's a very nebulous concept and I'm all about tangible things. So what I've really boiled it down to for myself is, can I answer questions for people? Can I make them smarter, fill a need, answer their questions? So to make it very direct and 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 show you an example, and I don't want to make this creepy at all, but one of the reasons that I'm getting so much value for myself out of being a part of this new Office Hours community to me is that I'm listening to the questions that everybody is asking about Discord. And when I hear somebody make a comment, I don't like this thing. I don't know how to use this thing. We'd really like this. These are all questions that an audience, a community, customers potentially are asking about a product that I want to be pardon me, be able to educate and make a business out of coaching people in. So this is an invaluable way for me to be able to gather what exactly those questions are. And I have a dump list of a scratch, scratch list, a lot of people call it, I think, but I, I call it a brain dump of all the things, all the comments that people make to me on the side about, I I need an answer to this question. And so it's my job now to go out as a content creator 
and make the content that answers those questions. So I hope that gives a little bit of a, a practical slant on how you can do this whole value prop uh, exercise within your own content. I like what you said there too, Keely, of just, you know, I have notes, folders upon folders <laughs> with notes of just when those ideas come to you. And since I know we will dive into the question soon of like process and how, you know, even the panel, how do you create when you're thinking about creating content? What does that look like? Because things like brain dumping, it's not just sitting there in some people that works for you. You can just sit there for a good 30 minutes, an hour and get your all your ideas out. But and that's what leads into like even batch content creation. I know personally, not when we're working on projects, but personally, when I have to create content, it's much easier to just be able to go back to that repository of all of those ideas and then be able to say, OK, here are the best ones and I can sit for this hour or this next 20 minutes and I can knock out, you know, I can knock out some reels or I can go live on LinkedIn with this specific topic. So not content creation for many people is not necessarily linear. You do have a system in place, but it's all of these pieces that, you know, you that you pull together. And there was something else just kind of tying in everything. And hopefully I have this, this set up. Okay. So let's see. Okay. There we go. Um, because I know that our community is also people who are small businesses or solopreneurs, and then those that are in growing businesses and looking at that side of it where, okay, you're creating content because ultimately you're trying to either grow your brand, so brand awareness, or you're trying to get sales. And if you are looking at sales, the, the sales funnel, so I'll just quickly pull this in here, probably shouldn't have put it over my face, but we're going to keep it going. But the first part of it is, you know, the awareness. So what kind of content can you create that's going to just bring you the eyeballs? Because once you, so if that is, you know, you go live, that is coming on office hour and being office hours and being a panelist, answering questions so that people get to know who you are. And then once you're able to really think through what, attracts your audience. If you don't know that, go and look at your analytics. That, that definitely is something that will help you. But then they talk about the consideration phase and that content looks different than the content that's at the top of the funnel. That's where there's a little more thought put into your content because someone already is aware of who you are, but now they're like, okay, you know, is office hours really what I think it is? And that's where you'll be able to provide more information. Maybe that's now you dive into after hours because after hours, even though it's a community, there's a lot of content in the conversations that happens there. And then look Looking at, okay, well, how do I get them to lock in? For a business, it's the purchase. Um, for a community like ours, it's the engagement. So how do I get, you've moved people from, they heard about office hours, they're considering diving in, okay? Now they're actually, the, what does that engagement look like in, in the funnel? And that's why we have things like the newsletter that connects with people. So once they've signed up, they're in the newsletter, there are opportunities for them to engage and to participate. And then going down to the bottom, and again, it depends how detailed your funnel looks like, but then it's like loyalty. How do you get people to keep coming back? This is where you get your, you know, your brand ambassadors or people who are shouting to the rooftop. So when you think about the funnel in that way, it's like, well, what kind of content are you creating that takes people down a journey? So I just wanted to also paint a bit of that picture for you as well in content being so much more than just putting out a post, an article or, um, or video. 
All right, Courtney. Well, I'm not a content creator. I participate in content, uh, other people's content creation, which is great for me. But uh, I, th- I consider it more like I am an inventor or an entrepreneur, I guess you could say. And I'm sure it shares, content creation shares a lot of uh, uh, things with, you know, invention, creation. You don't want to create something that everybody else is doing. Don't be a copycat. Don't just do the same dance that everybody else is doing on uh, TikTok. Uh, And in invention, the same thing. You know, you look for something that frustrates you and look to see if there's some solution for it. If you can't find a solution or can't find an easy solution or one that works for you, that may be a good direction to go for creation of something new that will fill that void. So look at filling a void. And if there's a void in the market or a void in, in uh, content that's available out there on YouTube, then look at filling that void and people will beat a path to your door. That's a good one. Thank you, Courtney. Seth? So I'm a more technical-minded person than a creative one, so I see a lot through that particular lens. But when I think about content creation strategy, I think about the systems to, to create that content in a timely fashion. So if you are in a particular industry or a particular vertical where news breaks, whether it's you know product news, services news, um, legal news, whatever the case may be, having the systems in place to create that quick turnaround, short format uh, content can help you potentially reach a new audience. It might make you a thought leader in that particular vertical as a result of it. So, so you know, I can have a million ideas of all these videos that I want to create, but sometimes the most effective one might be the one that you can get out there in a very short amount of time to reach a new audience. Good call. Alex? Yeah, I mean, I think that when you think about other people's content too, realize if you look at someone's content, you can't find, you can find lots of things about something, but not a very good one, and you think you can improve it there's an opportunity there. <laughs> so, so the thing is, is that a lot of times, you know, the people put things up very quickly or easily on YouTube, they had kind of hack something out and put it up. And that might say, oh, that's a good idea when I'm searching for something, but it's not exactly the way I would do it. Or I think this is a little off or whatever. That's the beauty of YouTube is that there's six different versions of it and you get to compete in that area as well. And oftentimes you'll show up next to a more popular one. And if yours is better than you, you know, it's, it's, uh, that's how that works. So, um, you know, you don't necessarily feel like you can't make a piece of content because someone's already made it. Um, it is, uh, you, you can definitely, if you think you can make a, a serious improvement over it, uh, you may find that I, I uh, you know, some of the most basic things I've worked on have gotten the most number of views, <laughs> you know, so, so I think that you, you want to keep that in mind. Also, I really like to think about things and talk them out with people. I think Pixar does this really well with their scripting. And I think a lot of people don't do it well, which is that you want to think about your question. You, you want to think about what you're doing and with other people, talk it out. Like this is the script and read it out to somebody else and put it out there for someone to listen to. My, my uh, wife, unfortunately, has to listen to mine over and over and over again as I start to work through some idea that I want to put up. Um, and other people around me have to put up with that as well. And I think that that, but that does help kind of, you'll hear it. You'll hear it when it works and when it doesn't. And I find that I need, for me to do my best content, I need to be wandering around talking about it, you know, literally pacing while talking um, to, 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 you know, figure it out. Everyone has their own creative process, but speaking it out loud before you go to record um, uh, and then be be ruthless about it. You know, when you're reading it and it doesn't work, then fix it. You know, like we're, if you're doing long form, like what we're doing here, you can get away with us just running on like I am right now. Um, whereas uh, if you're making content for YouTube, 
you know, like I don't, I'm not a big fan of trying to clip things out of the show because I feel like it's not great content for the user. I think that the user wants something very specific to the point, well done, that they can, you know, they, they, they get all the information they need and there's no dead space, you know, and if you talk to YouTubers that are getting millions of followers, tens of millions of followers, hundreds of millions of followers, they pay enormous amounts of, of energy on making that, that thing just right, pacing it so it's pacing it so that you hang on and you keep, you hang on to those viewers and they're, you're competing now against people who are paying incredible amounts of attention to what's going on in there in, in what's, you know, exactly how people are viewing it and whether they're holding on to people and they hold on to people by building that great content and giving you a payoff all the time to have you continue to watch it. You make a, an excellent point there, Alex, of just like the iteration that happens on that that piece of content that you might see, like drawing inspiration, inspiration, not copying, inspiration from other people's content. And if your audience is similar or you find that you can add value to that, like just that one tip or that one extra piece of information that you you put on that that can make the world of dis difference especially thinking about your audience and your community if this is something that they go ahead and, and and look at the trends of what's happening in current videos because there used to be a trend for instance to tell everyone to subscribe at the beginning uh to tell everyone to do all those things and now that's not the trend anymore the trend is now to give you exactly what we told you you were going to get within the first minute, like within the first minute or two, I'm going to give you what you wanted. And then I'm going to expound on that and talk about it more for a little while. And then I'm going to expound on it a little bit more. So if I want to have a longer form thing, I get into more and more detail, but less and less of what you came for, but more and more detail. And at the end, I'm going to tell you to subscribe, or I'm going to flip that up and tell you to subscribe in a non nonverbal way. But the efficiency is very, very important to hang on to people. Um, and so that's, that's, that's a newer trend um, that wasn't the case three years ago. So you oftentimes want to pay attention to what's happening right now and look at some of the, the best. The other thing I would say is look at the best um, folks who have the m many, many followers and take a look at what they're doing. Uh, Renee Ritchie, um, Veritasium, uh, Tom Scott, uh, Ms., uh, Mr. Beast, you know, those are folks that are paying incredible amounts. I'm just, <laughs> what came off the top of my head, but uh, uh, Justine Ezerick is another good one that, that does a lot of, um, you know, just builds a lot of that content really, really tightly um, and keeps those, keeps those viewers on for a long time. Nigel? Yeah, I think, I think we can be dissuaded by thinking about the really high-end best of breed. That's a great place to end up. It's a really tough place to start. And I think one of the best advices I give most people when they ask me about this is just start. Get going. Do something. It may be hideous. It may be terrible. But if you have some sense of where you want to get to, then just starting will help you journey your, your line. And I, and I sometimes worry that when we, when we list the super, the super people at this, it scares the rest of us get going. And n none of those people start where they are today. The good thing, though, is to take away from take a page out of their journey of their start of them. A lot of time they have some like retrospective um, videos on their channels where it's like, oh, and I look at my video. It was, you know, Marquise Brown um, just like listening to his stuff and how he started. But you make an excellent point because we do have a wide audience of people who are here where they've been spending money on the research and the analytics and all of the trends and people who are either 
just getting started or growing, which is why I actually I was starting by saying, you know, Alex's point of like, take one thing, take one thing and then say, okay, I like this video or uh, this, this blog post or vlog and I'm going to add my twist. Like how would I make this different or what from this great advice would my audience appreciate and then bring that to you to the table. I'll tell this quick story. Um, I think it was sometime last year, I had a bunch of um, friends sending me DMs of like, oh, this, I don't remember what it was, but some trend or some tip. And it's like, I can't wait till you do this. I'm like, I'm not doing it. Everybody's talking about this. I don't want to do it. And they said specifically, like, but I want to see your take on it. And that changed my entire perspective on, you know, teaching tutorials or doing that and putting that out there. Because to me, and in this office hour space, it's like, oh, there's all these people already doing it. I don't need to. But they're, again, going back to your audience and the value, there are people who want to hear your specific spin. That's why we have, you know, a day where there's audio and our audio people come on because there are questions they can answer and there's specific value that they can provide more than another, you know, another specific day. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, the um, to, uh, it's funny that there's a, there's a couple um, things there that are similar for me. I I people asked for Photoshop tutorials years ago, twenty years ago, and I was like, you know, there's a ton of Photoshop tutorials that you can already buy at Borders Bookstore. There, back when we had bookstores, and um, and they no, they were they wanted my version of it, and I literally to Nigel's point. I was like, I don't have time to make this. Like, what was keeping me from doing it was trying to make a perfect Photoshop. I had this idea of how to do it with green screen and how to do all this other stuff. And what I ended up doing is just sitting down and recording eight hours of, or uh, well, eight hours of stuff and then cutting it down to two hours and saying, there's Photoshop. And literally in my Photoshop training, it said, this is the slice tool. I have no idea what that does. Like I, I literally told, said, I just don't, I don't know what that does, but I've been using this, this program for a long time. If I don't know, you probably don't need to know right now. <laughs> So, and then I just kept going, you know, and I just kept on moving. I didn't try to learn something I didn't know. I just simply just talked off the top of my head and we sold thousands, thousands of those discs. Um, you know, and so, um, so I think that to, to Nigel's point, you getting out there, my most viewed on my current channel right now is a test. I literally, um, was testing my camera and had some and shot someone making a margarita machine out of a disposal. And, um, and it was one shot, one take, put it up and, um, the most views I think on my channel. So, um, so anyway, so the, uh, so I think that, um, definitely I do agree with getting out, but what I would say is go do it and not, not worry too much, but watch everybody else and learn. So as you, there's this, how we've learned for the history of humanity is that you watch other people do it. You ask questions and then you go do it. And then you come back and watch people and ask questions and go do it. Cause that's going to tie that, that knowledge in is to actually, you can't think through it. You're going to have problems with the lights and the cameras and the batteries and the, and the external noise and everything else. And you don't get that experience from, from reading books or watching how to's you get that experience from running through it. Um, also just keep it short. Um, if you're not good at this yet, if you're learning how to do it, um, you know, you, try to keep them under two or three minutes because it's just, it gets to be a long, it takes a long time to make it and it takes a long time to watch it if it's not very good. And just pulling in some comments, Bobby said, just hit record on your camera. Roscoe said, start under a fictitious name just in case you want to jump ship. Ship. Many wish their early IMDB credits could have been deleted. And with that, Bill, let's get into these questions. All right. The next one coming up from Xander Snell in Miami. Hello, panel. Can you please describe your process of converting a design brief into an actionable design? Go ahead, Alex. 
I mean, usually we, again, we go back to the audience. What does the audience want to see here? What are, what are, what is going to be valuable to them? You know, not what do we want to, we look at the design brief and we know we have to cover those points, but we really want to focus on what is the, what is the audience going to enjoy? What is going to be valuable? And then I usually start with, we start writing a script, but that script is notes. Like we're going to go from this to this, to this, to this, to this. I try to start with the least amount of detail. I don't try to fill it all out. We, we, we break it in. Sometimes we put it on note cards and we set them like we're going to talk about this and then this and then this and then we'll move it around. I just use Apple Notes and move them around. Um, I'm starting to play with using um, the new free form from Apple um, that I can just drag things around. And we use Miro for these. It depends on the team you're working with. But move things around. Get things to be portable and easy for you to keep on rearranging until you're happy with it. And then we storyboard. And a lot of people wait for storyboard artists. I just open up my iPad and start sketching on a, on, on Keynote. And I know what I mean, you know, as I do that. Um, and then, and then we, and then we start to try to kind of uh, work through that. Uh, a lot of times, we'll record the voiceover first with the with the with the pieces to make sure that we have the right timing and we have the right sketching, you know, sketch outs of the sketches of this is what I'm there because it's a lot easier to do it to edit it there is a lot easier than later. Um, so it's like a paper edit of that process, not a paper edit, but a, like a rough edit, an anavent. You know, I came I came from previs, so it's a previs of that. Before we start building things and and um, building out sets and and so on and so forth, we we or, or doing something more complicated like even getting in the car, <laughs> like just figure it all out in your in, on your desktop, and then you can start to work through it after the story has been figured out. A lot of times, people start shooting before they have that whole story in their mind, and it takes a lot a lot more work to tie that back to something useful if you haven't if you don't know where you were going when you shot it. Go ahead, Bill. In terms of design, my, my arc of my career has been, at first, I appreciated it a little bit. What What is design? I wasn't really sure about it. Then I started copying designs. You know, oh, that looks really good. Maybe I can do something like that. And I started to execute on things that I saw out there. Then I was really fortunate. I started getting to work in larger and larger organizations. And I actually got to work with designers. And those are generally people who have four decades, years, decades, <laughs> a long time, have really studied design and how it works. And I always, at every step in my career, understood that I knew far less than I thought I would about the process of doing this. But I just kept absorbing and absorbing. And I would say after 40 years of doing this, I'm at the point where I can really recognize good design. I still can't do it. I, I can still basically go back to all the things that I've seen and learned from and reproduce that. But I have infinite respect for the re what I call the real designers who can look at a blank thing that has nothing in it and do something unique and powerful that really works. It's an artistic skill that I am in awe of. Next question. Chris Widener uh, in Lafayette, Indiana says, the nonprofits I work for have a history of doing newsletters. How would you approach turning a print newsletter into a monthly video or podcast? Such a good question. Keely. I had to take a few minutes to Google print newsletters, but I found some references, got myself all up to speed. Thank you very much. No, I'm sorry. So I would shift the thinking just a little bit first to say the print newsletter transition to an email newsletter right away for creators, for anybody running small businesses, the only asset that you truly own in terms of a method of outreach are emails. And so people are, are, just pounding on this concept that if you have an email list, you will always have a way of accessing your people. Facebook can go away. Discord can go away. Instagram can go away, but you can always have those email addresses. So I'd really encourage 
thinking about shifting that first. And then there's a, a number of routes you can go. For example, I subscribe to Josh Spector's For the Interested newsletter. And what he does is it's one line of here's a thought and he has a hyperlink and it goes out to something that he's posted on usually Twitter or maybe it's a YouTube video. And it's just that one thought that gets you looking at more pieces of content and keeps you within that particular person's content flywheel. You can do it the other way that your email newsletter refers to other content that you've put out uh that you've summarized and you're, hey, go go look at these things. So think about shifting to an email newsletter first, and then your content can spring from there. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, if you're looking to do a monthly video uh, podcast or something from a printed newsletter, uh, you want to do something that's a little more creative than just standing in front of the camera and reading the printed newsletter. That can be very boring. I'd say find a, a cohort, somebody to co-host it with you, because two people presenting the news, even if you're, you know, one person takes one piece of news and the next person takes the next piece of news, and then you can comment on it between the two of you. Uh, so you have a little bit of commentary along with the newsletter. We'll keep it in, in uh, you know, keep the audience engaged and, and keep them interested because they don't know, even if they get the print newsletter, they don't know what you're going to say or what your your take on the news is going to be. So add a little bit of commentary. And if you can get somebody to co-host the video with you, you'll have support and you'll develop, uh, you know, a sense, a more of a sense of community with more than just your standing on camera and reading the news. Go ahead, Bill. One of my most successful projects was turning this into uh, creating one of these for uh, one of my early large companies that really accelerated our adoption by the entire organization. And basically what saved my life was what I called templatizing it. Um, at first, we were just kind of thinking about doing it randomly, but then we realized after the first one got feedback that what we really needed was a little, maybe 15 to 30 second opening that says, here's what this show is going to cover. And then our first interview and or story was a particular block. And then we had a break and then we had something for the sales department to come in and do their stuff. And then another break and then a message from the CEO and then a, another break and then the close of the show. Having that template on my Final Cut timeline meant that each week, instead of trying to figure out a whole show, I was really looking to fill each of those blocks. It became something the audience understood that this was going to be the form of the video newsletter every month, that if they're not, you know, they could quickly see what was going to be covered up front and whether which section they wanted to go to. So templatizing, I think, really makes your job a lot easier in any form of communication like this. Go ahead, Alex. The first thing I do is probably just read the articles into an audio thing and let people listen to it. <laughs> There's people like me that won't read anything anymore. And so the first thing I would do is literally have someone just read it all so that if I don't want to read it, you can just send it, you know, I can subscribe to it. And I'd remind people in the newsletter that there's an audio version of this, um, you know, and and um, as soon as people know that there's an audio version, you'll find that the drop off is very quick to the, they'll start moving over to that because a lot of people want not to read uh, not, not to read newsletters. <laughs> so, so if you have someone with a good voice that's in the organization and willing to read it, read that out, it's the easiest way to create the content because you're already creating that content. You're probably not going to just stop doing the newsletter and then doing a monthly video. So the first transition would be to, to do that, that there. Um, I probably do video last. I probably do audio for quite some time because it's just a lot easier to produce. Um, and um, you, it's really hard to be interesting for long periods of time with video. And so you just want to 
uh, we, I don't, we, we do the best we can here. So, so the, um, but the, uh, but I think that that would be a difficult thing um, for, because people are still going to want to get that information from the news, from that newsletter. Other things to think about that are outside the newsletter are things like Flipboard and RSS feeds and other things that you can publish that can, you can publish lots of things. We're going to be doing that here soon. Um, and, uh, and so that people can just get the information that's interesting to it for the, those that are the most interested in that process. But writing new custom content will take a lot of time and you have to really think, because once you turn it on, you'll have some people that really like it. And if you can't keep going, they're going to be really upset. So the, the, you, whatever you're doing, make sure that you think about the sustainability over six months to a year to make sure that it's, it's worth turning on because turning it on and then turning it off will cause more trouble than never having it in the first place. And some of the things that come to mind is, one, this is a great opportunity to really assess the effectiveness. So I don't know if that's already been done. I'm going to pretend like it's, oh, okay, we can do a newsletter and we want to, we just want to instantly create a, a podcast. Is So like, what's the business goal? So is it, if it's a, just informing the audience, are you looking for, you know, more engagement? And that's where I start. A lot of great suggestions have already been shared, but is there a way, and since you mentioned that it's a nonprofit, your resources may or may not be scarce. So just looking at how much work it would be to put in to do the the podcast, is there a way to create more snackable content that you could maybe have a higher frequency? So if the newsletter has, you know, three or four components, is that something that can be shared maybe every other week? So now it's bi-weekly, but it's just shorter. So those touch points. Um, and the biggest of it all is just getting feedback of how effective the newsletter is. What I appreciate about what Keely had mentioned is that you can get the metrics of your open rate and how people are really engaging with it. What are they clicking on? Because we are talking about content today. So that could also inform other decisions that you um, that you may have in the organization and just help other areas of the community. Bill? One last thought that I forgot, uh, decentralize if you can too. One of the most successful things we did back in those days, many years ago, was we had a little camera we called Rover, and it was an, a Pelican, a bright yellow Pelican case, and we sent it out to the stores. There were like maybe 150, 200 stores, and we would get people to submit their own little inserts. And I can't tell you how much that caused talk in the organization and engagement. Now we're in an era where everybody on a smartphone can contribute content. So instead of saying, I, we're the central operation and we're just sending out news to you, you have an opportunity to get things in from the field and let people be a part of this process. And that is unbelievable for getting buy-in and engagement from troops in the field. Yes, user-generated content. Good call there, Bill. Seth? And a major benefit of an email newsletter over a print newsletter is is the idea of segmentation. Uh, so among the nonprofits that I work with, any any of them may have two or three different audiences that may engage with the organization in different capacities. So experiment on the on the email newsletter side with segmenting your message with different groups who might be getting involved in different ways. It's more likely to achieve a higher open rate, uh, more engagement. So there is some extra uh, possibility as well uh, going down this route. Next question. Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. With so much stock footage available, is the percentage of original content dropping to a point where in order to stay competitive, you have to join in the race to the stock footage bottom? Go ahead, Bill. I don't think it's the stock footage. I think it's how you use it. There, there are perfectly 
reasonable ways to make compelling content that is created out of stock footage. I actually get a lot of requests from clients in the corporate world to do that. And if you're just if you're careful about how you do it, if you throw together and just have the stock footage be only relatively uh, connected to your message, then yes, it will become boring and terrible. But if you go out into the stock libraries and if your script is strong and you really have something to say, there's a lot of content that you can use that legitimately emphasizes your message. And as long as you are doing that, stock footage is not a sin. It's a, it's an additive. It's a quicker way to get visually striking and interesting things. And I know Alex may be going to mention this next, but you know this possibility of mid-journey and things like that coming up, you will be able to maybe customize and get closer to what you want faster. And whether that's actual stock footage or just taking advantage of the way the world is changing, don't just dismiss it as a class. It can be valuable. Go ahead, Alex. As a budding, what I would call diffusionist or a prompt engineer, according to MIT, um, I don't, I'm using almost no stock footage anymore. I'm doing almost everything in mid-journey. <laughs> so so I, I sit in mid-journey and just type away and, and I'm getting better and better and better at getting the things that I want. Although when I say over flat white, I get a lot of coffee. Um, but, but outside of that, um, I, I, <laughs> and it'll be weird. It'll be like, I did last night, I was doing Abraham Lincoln as a, as a, uh, Pixar character, and I got Abraham over flat white, and um, and I had Abraham Lincoln holding a coffee cup. Anyway, so the um, so anyway, so the uh, but I will say that I would not want to be in the stock market business, stock image business, because uh, of these tools that are coming out with AI that'll let you do something that's so much more imaginative and interesting, um, and and moving that forward because you can really give it a style. And so, what one of the things I'm learning is that I can have tons of images that all have the same style because I say in the style of. And now I get all of these things that are like, I'll say, like, I want to have a bunch of examples. I used to dig through to find isometric, you know, isometric is one version of this that we use a lot of in documents. Now I can say, I want this in the style of isometric and it just does it. You know, I want this and I want a null, you know, overview of this and it just does it, you know, so, so it's, it's a null or nulls, you know, overview of something and, and it just does that. And so, um, so I think that um, there's a lot there to, to look at before I would use um, stock. But otherwise, I've used stock a lot, probably more than shooting, just because it, you just have to do the math. Like, is it is it worth it to, to illustrate that thing? It's just not worth setting up a crew. I know how much it costs to set up a crew. Um, when we talk about a specific thing that it needs to be shown, then I go, we, we go in and we shoot it. But we try to also think about we're going to shoot all these things and augment them. And we've augmented movies with stock footage <laughs> like you know like you can do you know there's it just depends on how much does it cost and is it worth it yeah that that price point making a huge difference and pulling in jeffrey this was something i was thinking as well jeffrey in the comments says there are so many youtube channels that use stock footage for some successful channels there are some people who don't want to be on camera so stock footage they that's the way that they go i've seen a lot of trends just even changing with people who are they'll original content is me speaking right now but then they still include some elements of b-roll being the stock footage and some of it is for entertainment factor so i don't I, think I, it to your point one thing that i think is a new trend that I, I don't know if you've noticed liberty is the is that people aren't doing their own voiceovers they're literally having they're using ai to yes. and and not very good ai yet or maybe that's the sound that they want but they're and i think it's a lot of folks with english as a second language rather than using you know a, a, a heavily um accented english they just 
have that have it all be you see a lot of that stuff with uh, Chinese content coming out um you know of like little five minute hand handy crafts or whatever all of that stuff is is a lot of that stuff is is chinese and um and uh, they just use voice to text or text to voice um, for everything right and and you know that because like I'll typically like sometimes I'll be looking for like some tip and I'll click on it it's like oh that was okay I hear the voice but okay the v- content was valuable and I go back and I look at who's commenting and that's exactly right that's what you see it's like oh okay this yeah. is from you know Expected. some other some other place next question Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana is up next. The blank paper approach to get down all ideas, no matter their feasibility, is often to me the hardest part of what you have used to jumpstart the process. Go ahead, Keely. That sounds horrible. Blank paper approach. We had a, a, a nice sort of conversation at the beginning of the segment where we were talking about things like scratch files, brain dumps, whatever the case might be. And I can't remember the last time I had to sit in front of a blank paper and try to think about content I wanted to create because instead I really focus on trying to grab any idea and stuffing it somewhere. My biggest challenge is remembering where I stuffed something. Uh, Another alternative you can use is just the old search engine uh, uh, alternative. I'll open up a browser and I'll just start typing in the URL bar Discord server and see what autocomplete comes up. And what I'm going to get back are the most uh, trending or most searched for questions that people have about that particular topic. And I'll just scroll down. Discord server, how to create a channel. Okay, a lot of people are looking for that information. That would be a good video to create. So that is just one way. You can also use ChatGPT to help you. Hey, can you give me five of the most popular questions that people are asking today about Discord servers? And boom, you'll get a list. And it really, there is no shortage of ideas out there. So don't confine yourself to a blank piece of paper. Go ahead, Nigel. So I think I'll add three to that list. Uh, if you really want to start with a blank piece of paper, here's what I do. So I put a blank piece of paper on me. I haven't found a way of doing this on screen. So I do put a piece of paper and I write on the top, here's what I want the audience to walk away with. And then I just start writing down our thoughts, questions, ideas. I just try and dump everything I can, keep looking back at the line at the top of the page. Then I start trying to cluster that stuff in to see if there are common thoughts. And if you do that for a while, you'll you'll get a pretty interesting structure, I find. By the way, beware in all of these things, editing yourself too quickly. Edit yourself at the end of the process. Don't edit yourself in the process or you're going to lose some stuff. The, The second technique, if I want a bit more structure... I use the Rudyard Kipling six serving men. I'll put it in the in the chat if you don't know it, but those are the six questions you can ask yourself about any subject. Just trying to answer those questions gives me enough to make me jump back maybe to the first technique. And the third thing is, again, I'm very boring on this subject. It's my favorite subject. You know, if you really don't know where you're going, it doesn't matter what direction you take. So write your value proposition down. Who are you trying to talk to? What do they want? How do you give it and what makes you difference? And if you can do some of that, you'll start to give yourself the structure and not get caught up by the blank piece of paper. And I mentioned this a, a little bit earlier, but I literally have folders upon folders in my notes on my um, on, on my iOS because but 
compartmentalizing them into areas where I know that I'm going to necessarily like I need to create something. So I've got a folder that is like these are all reels. And so I'll grab links and I'll just dump. And it really is what helps the idea of or I guess what I'm steering you away from is not just sitting down in front of that blank piece of paper because that's where anxiety and like just so many other external factors may hinder you there. It's as the thoughts come, like really working in your natural flow. And that might sound airy, but let me give me a moment to, to explain it. So even coming into office hours today, somebody mentioned something and I have my notes up. It's like, oh, that's a good one that I can, you know, do more research and not limiting yourself to like writing the full thought out or having it all together as Nigel just shared, but having those buckets. So if your bucket is nonprofit, your bucket is professional development and your other bucket is like Q&A. And so as you're going through your week, you've got, you know, just go ahead and go in that folder and dump some ideas in and then um, in the content creation world of like that day when you batch content or when you're doing your research to prepare for that as we are talking about some processes and systems today is okay here's the day where I'm doing pre-production so these go back through your notes and then maybe expound a little more as Nigel said like what does the audience really want to see or hear you hear me say this anytime we're talking digital marketing or anything like that Go to your analytics and see what did well or what didn't do well. Look at the comments and then go and put those into your buckets. Again, starting from the foundation of knowing who your business goal or your goal, and then how is it that you're bringing value? How are you answering questions? How are you solving problems? With that in context, that will help with that, like, no, do not sit in front of a blank page, but go with your day-to-day -day and, and creating a habit that will be able to help you to put those things in, in categories that will help you along the way. Next question. Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana. What about creating content in unique locations? What in the background might draw in people? Courtney. Um, yeah, well, the primary creator who was famous for doing this is, I know, the darling of Alex Lindsay is James Burke and Connections. And if you go back and look at that series, it was an informational series about the connections and between people and places and history and inventions and so on. And the thing that gave the intrigue is that James Burke was the on-camera presenter for all of them. But he'd be in that little cream-colored uh, leisure suit uh, from the 70s. And when he'd talk about some person in history, he would go to that location in history and he'd suddenly be there in that leisure suit in ancient Egypt or Mesopotamia or, you know, the uh, Edison's workshop, wherever. And the, just the change in the background and he's presenting tools and props and things that were used by that person or thing that relate to the connections between people and places in history. And it made all the difference in the world is putting the him into the actual location really keeps the interest up and makes it uh, turns it from just a boring lecture into an interactive trip around the world. And of course, you have to have a ton of money to do this. So you have to have very good financing in order to do this in reality. But these days with video walls and uh, mid journey, be able to create uh, digital 3D backgrounds, you could probably do it on a pretty slim budget and uh, never leave your room. Bill? 
So my answer to this question, what what in the background might draw in people? Everything and things you don't even realize. And I'm, it took me immediately back to uh, this past Friday when we did the tennis thing with Jeff Keithley. Uh, it was interesting to me because uh, we had him talking on screen, but I could also on my other screen see as Sky was moving around facility. And so we had kind of stock shots and then he would go someplace and I kept finding myself drawn to the moving shots and I couldn't take my eyes off of some of the shots that rationally were the least interesting. He was walking at some point behind secondary courts going from location to A to location B and I found myself utterly engaged with this otherwise boring shot because I was thinking to myself oh look he was mentioning rain and there are the cables on the bottom and look at how they're handling the cable thing I was completely engaged in the backstage of this show and I probably wouldn't have sh- uh, switched to that shot as a director but I probably should have you never know what the audience is interested to interested in. And we have this option now with some of these wireless handheld cameras to really take people and give them a bigger version of behind the scenes if we're not afraid to do so. And it it's the note I made for myself. People love being on location to places that they're not normally, that they don't normally have access to. And I think the more you can give people of that, the better people are engaged. And Alex. Yeah, and also think about you know just how does it serve the the viewer you know so what be don't be at a at a crazy background because you want to be at a crazy background do something because it serves that and also think about making it the foreground so the other thing is is that you can what really makes a lot of content easier is to have edit points when you talk in front of the camera and you're stuck with that um, you know you got to be careful if you want to do a lot of pickup shots at those locations so that you can paper over it and oftentimes people doing things people walking things happening in that in that environment that illustrate the things that you want and that's where it comes down to kind of knowing what your mission is so you grab all that bits and content grab lots of head and tail and what that means is that you're grabbing you know if you think you need 20 seconds grab a minute you know or two minutes of it and and really don't move the camera very much and just grab onto those things or follow things around Um, that footage is just gold when you're trying to put something together and paper over things later. And just pulling in the comment, Rob mentions behind the scenes is fairly is fairly popular. And I don't know if it's already been discussed, but Instagram Meta, Instagram released a an announcement last week called Instagram Channels, which is basically a one to many um, feature, I'll say, where you can broadcast in your DMs to an audience. I think it goes up to a max. No, I shouldn't say that because the creator that I follow, there are only a handful of creators in the U.S. who have access to that. And what this feature, which will be rolled out to the general public, is you being able to ask polls, like ask questions. And a big thing is the the behind the scenes. So this exclusive content that you can be able to um, share with your community. So to your question of like the behind the scenes, like that, that kind of content usually works really well for engagement and for your audience. Next question. Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana is up next. And Chris says, um, when you're doing serial content, especially podcasts, how many episodes do you want to work ahead? Three, four, more? Go ahead, Keely. My experience with doing the Creators Pod podcast with my friends is that as many as we possibly could, that's what we should be doing. Because even if we work two weeks ahead in release, that ends up, we get tripped up in in some fashion. So really aspire to go as far as you can possibly. But if you have 
two weeks of content, if you're releasing on a weekly basis, for example, at least if you have that, that will cover you for emergencies, but it won't really cover you for peace of mind. And that peace of mind is that you give yourself that breathing room so you can really think through how you're going to plan to release content that's connected, that's responding, that's building on itself and that sort of thing. So really just go as far as you possibly can. And when you don't, you will be sorry. And Chris, like this is life happens. So that's exactly what Keely said. Who knows what comes up when we're working with clients? We ideally like at minimum getting a month of head ahead of whatever their their cadence is, whether they're publishing every week or or biweekly. So we're like, okay, no, we need another four, another eight episodes again just for that. And I love what Keely said of just the the breathing room because your capacity to create, to find additional guests or whatever the format and the content of the show to to do better marketing around it helps more when you have that room to do more. Alex? Yeah, we tell people not to start a podcast until they've got 20 20 episodes thought through of what they're going to do for 20 episodes. The reason is, is that somewhere between 12 and 16, people run out of all the easy ideas. It just seems like they just, you know, like, oh, I can, I can do this and then I can do this and I can do this. But then when you get to that 12 or it starts to grind and then you have to figure out the pattern, there's always a pattern of what you're looking for. I want to have this much of this and this, but how are you going to build a pattern? And a lot of times we try to start thinking about patterns. You see it here. Um, We try to think of patterns of, um, I'm going to, different subject each week that I'm aiming for. And you start building, because now you only have, if you have one, if you have four different verticals and then you run it over 12 months, you only have 12 of each that you have to think of. You know? And then you have, then you can keep on, you know, breaking that down. It makes it a little easier to kind of attack it, but we find that that's a lot easier. Now, once you get going, staying, as I said before, four to eight weeks ahead of planning. Um, the other thing you want to think about is when you record and when do you publish if you get too far ahead, you lose some of the excitement from the folks that are that you're interviewing. If you're bringing external folks on, if you're, it's all internal. Internal is hard because you have to keep on generating it. External is hard because you have to keep on scheduling it. So you have to decide which uh, which sword you want to use. And Keely, that is a great point that Alex just made and reminded me of what we did with our podcast: is that we actually recorded six episodes, but before we put anything out whatsoever, because we all know podcast fade is at seven episodes. So we made sure we had six in the can before we even started launching it, and then we didn't even start publicizing it until we had six episodes published, and we were working on the seventh, so that we knew we had a back catalog. So if people went to look at the property, they'd say, "Oh." There's actually some content here. These people are just going to vanish immediately. And it just gave us that feeling of momentum and a feeling of momentum for the audience as well. Next question. Next one comes to us from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. And he says, you put awareness at the top of your funnel. Is it okay to put clickbait content there in order to get attention? Or would that devalue the integrity of your valuable but not so shiny main content? Go ahead, Nigel. So I guess it depends what your objective is. If it's to get people to your page so you can watch ads, then I'm guessing that's a good thing to do. If your objective of your funnel is to convert awareness into consideration, into preference, and finally into action, which is what the funnel is really meant to do, then getting awareness with the wrong kind of people is no value to you because it doesn't convert into consideration. It doesn't 
uh, therefore turn into preference and into action. And I know there are some people who say, well, you know, any PR is good PR. I don't think that's true here. I think you've got to be clear on you, who your audience is and go capture awareness in that group. And without looking up the definition of clickbait, and if you are looking for click worthy, if we switch that around click worthy content, then yes, definitely that's what you want because that person who then clicks the, you know, the top of the funnel and they click and it's a, a tech tip or some sort of tutorial or some, whatever that content looks like for you, you want them to keep going down. So yes, create click worthy, snackable, quick, valuable content for them to be going. But it, if it is deceptive, I think that's where you get into that area of you don't want to do that because you will lose the, you'll not only lose, well, you win the click, but you lose the loyalty. You lose the fact that they know that you're someone who will provide them a rich experience. So think of the funnel as an experience that you're creating. So you put the, you, those of you who have a Costco in your area, you go to Costco, they've got the, the little food out and that, that draws you in and like, hmm, you start talking to them. So there's some consideration there. And then from, you know, speaking with them, then you possibly pick up the, you know, just think of it in that, from that perspective of that experience that you create um, for them. Go ahead, Keely. Yeah, picking up on your theme there, Liberty, and the the Costco is is a nice analogy where it's a snackable little piece of value. So when I think about building awareness, I'm just trying to give people a very small digestible piece of value. It's always going to be valuable. So if I'm at that awareness part of the funnel and I look at, say, an Instagram or Twitter or TikTok as being at that component of my customer or community journey, then it's giving them something small that doesn't require a lot of commitment, but gives them a lot of knowledge at the same time. So for example, if there's one very small short play that people want to know, is that is that supposed to be a red card or not? If I'm doing something for umpiring content, then bang, that's something that I'll put out on the awareness channels in order to try to generate that interest and pulls people into the more complex discussions that also create value. So just just think about whether you can give value in a very small piece and then expand from there. And Courtney, real quick. Well, these days in the world of YouTube, I think you have to attract eyeballs. And so it is a race to you know create a thumbnail that is intriguing or poses an interesting question or will, will drive people to the site. But you've got to be able to deliver because if you promote something on the thumbnail and you don't deliver in the video, you'll be banned forever from that person's <laughs> click line. Well, thank you so much, producers. We've come to the end of another fantastic second hour. Thank you for your questions to our panelists. Thank you for, for jumping in and, and sharing your insights around content creation and strategies. I know this is this is not a, co a conversation that goes away, so we'll bring it back. And of course, to our back-end crew, thank you so much for your work, because without you, we could not be here. And of course, you want to look at officehours.global for the rest of the schedule for the week. And for the Talak Traverso, we have gone 50,433 miles, 81,163 kilometers. That is more than 456 million bananas and two times around the earth. So thank you so much. And we'll see you in after hours. Bye.
with your visual numbers, whichever one. Something for everyone. But we have to have animations. And do it in HDR and do it in time. Time bananas will go around Jupiter. How many bananas are on Jupiter? <laughs> Gonna get a bad letter from the plantain industry. I'm just saying. Thanks.